financial decisions, you face them at every turn. Do you ever feel lost? Do you ever feel like you might be missing something or making a mistake? Join Step Right with Lynn, the show dedicated to empowering socially conscious individuals to manage their financial resources for the benefit of themselves, their families, and the greater community. Here's Lynn Wedham, Certified Financial Planner at Step Right Capital Planning. Welcome to Step Right with Lynn. I'm your host, Lynn Wedham, and I have two fascinating guests here with me today. We're going to talk about water and the work of the organization called H2O for All. It has a mission to bring clean water and sanitation to many areas in need around the world. Vicki Higgins is a longtime resident of Oakville, where she owns and operates a personal training business called Body Benefit. Vicki was introduced to H2O two years ago when a friend asked her to join a volunteer trip to Uganda. Vicki fell in love with the Ugandan people and became passionate about raising awareness and fundraising for H2O for All. Vicki was presented with the One Drop Award for Volunteer of the Year in 2015. She heads up the Volunteer Executive and works closely with the Executive Director of H2O for All, Tim Mutu, who is my second guest today. Timothy Mutu is a Canadian engineer, entrepreneur, and co-founder and executive director of innovative, not-for-profit Canadian charity H2O for All. He is currently pursuing a Master of Public Health at the University of Waterloo, having obtained a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering from Ryerson University in Toronto. In May 2014, Timothy was the recipient of a Grand Challenges Stars in Global Health Award for the project entitled Synergy for Water Now. In September 2014, Timothy was the recipient of the Stars in Global Health Award, which is funded by the Government of Canada and supports bold ideas with big impact. In addition, he's partner of the United Nations University for Water, an environmental and health think tank. It's Tim's mission and the mission of H2O for all to bring safe water to all. Welcome, Vicki. Thank you. And welcome, Tim. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's great to have you here. So, Tim, we're going to talk about water. Yes. I don't know if there's anything that is more taken for granted in the developed world than water. Tim, I could have included a lot more stuff in your bio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so good. But, but tell us why this organization and this passion around water are a perfect fit for you. Well, thank you. I grew up in Mississauga in Ontario, and I didn't realize all of the aspects of water and all of the challenges of water that were going on around the world. And I, as I grew up, I found this love for becoming an engineer and I became an engineer and I became an expert in the professional field of how to treat water, how to manage water, how to store water. When I was older, um, in my 20s and 30s, I got to start to travel all over the world and I realized that in developing countries, this issue of water was so much of a challenge. It was the number one thing that was transmitting disease. It was the number one thing that women and children were walking for hours. And then I said to myself, well, I have all of this expertise. Why can I not give it back to these, some of these people? So it became one of these passions of mine to say, I have these expertise and all of these giftings being brought up in Canada. 
how can I give back to some of these incredible people living in hard situations and difficult situations? So that passion has increased um, to the point in 2008 that I co-founded this wonderful organization. So how is H2O for All different than other charities? Yeah, so one of the my challenges when I was kind of figuring my, out what to do in this conversation of water and sanitation, I could have just said, well, let's just join another charity and give these efforts to. But in the space of, of when I was dealing with looking at these issues, I found that a lot of times the projects and some of the work that's being implemented in countries aren't sustainable in the, in the idea of they're not looking at it from at a point of view of how are we using the people and the intelligence of the people and their knowledge to make sure that we're learning from them to be creating a successful project or, or initiative. So our approach to this whole discussion of water and working in these countries is that we first choose a partner on the ground. That's a partner, that's a charity or a, an NGO. And we say, well, we are going to partner with people that are already established in a certain country. And we presently work in 10 countries around the world. And through those, that development of that partnership with a NGO or a charity on the ground, then we build relationship with those local impoverished communities. Mm-hmm. Once we build relationships with those local impoverished communities, is we meet with them to say, well, what is going on in your community? You tell us, not we tell you. You tell us what's been going on for your whole life, how you have to deal with water and sanitation. So we build this relationship. We listen to the community leaders. We most of all listen to the women because the women are the ones spending most of the time gathering the water, gathering the charcoal and the firewood, taking care of the families. And then we come back and say, well, this is what we can do to help you solve your issues. And Tim, what are some of the things can go wrong if you don't have this understanding of what's happening on the ground before you start? And that really is the crux or the, the essence of who we are. And what happens is, and I've seen it time and time again, there's a lack of communication. There's a lack of relationship, and when there's a lack of relationship, there's a lack of trust. When there's a lack of trust, then things just do not gel and connect. So I'll give you a quick example. I was in Zambia, uh, southern Africa, a couple years ago, and I was invited by two wonderful Canadian charities out of Alberta. They said, Tim, we've raised about $20,000 to $25,000. We want to do some work in Zambia. And I said, oh, that's wonderful. I said, I will give you my advice in what to do. So I ended up, through a little bit of a process, going to the community mm-hmm. and being on the ground of the community. First thing I do is I try to do what we said. We build a relationship with the people and who are working there. I find out through the relationship that 16 wells, boreholes, were drilled already there. And okay. I'm like, this is strange. You have 16 boreholes that are already drilled in this community, but not one of them was working. Only one was kind of working and it was giving dirty water Hmm. so i said to the people and this is over a little bit of a couple days of trying to figure out well i can't understand this is i said to the people i'm like you have 16 boreholes or wells that are here but none of them are working how did this happen and this is what they said to me and i carry this for the rest of my life they said 
Tim, these people came in to help us, and they did a lot of great things by drilling 16 wells, Mm -hmm. but they never talked to us once. Mm -hmm. They never gave us the tools. They never trained us. They never showed us anything to do with these things that they've installed for us for water. Okay. So what came about through that is the two charities that I was working with, I said, let's not drill two new wells. Let's figure out a way to take that twenty twenty five thousand dollars right. to empower the community, to give them the tools, to also train them on how to fix their own wells. And that's what mm-hmm. we did, literally. We started to communicate with them and we brought local experts from the capital and we trained them on how to fix their own equipment. And to this day, they manage their own wells. Mm -hmm. So I kind of go back to that story of the most important thing that we can do when we work with people that are impoverished or going, experiencing a hard issue is to communicate. Mm -hmm. We are not Santa Claus. We aren't better than anyone else in that sense because we have more money or we have more education. It's they just don't have that opportunity. Mm-hmm. So for us, we need to say we're on the same level. We have some knowledge that we want to give to you. It's your community, and we want to work together. And only by working together are we going to come to this place that we can find sustainability and mm-hmm. long-term Im- impact. Mm-hmm. And by that model, and I think that's where we're, where H2O for All is really saying we won't do projects that are short-term. We aren't going to do projects that we're just handing you a $100 bill and just hope that everything's going to be fine. What we'd rather do is say, Lynn, let's figure out a way that we're helping you and your children. Let's listen to you, invite us into your home, and let's hear your story. And through that storytelling and through that communication, we say, well, maybe you're walking three to four miles a day. Maybe some of these things that are happening that we can help. So every single one of our projects is run by local people. Mm-hmm. I'm the only employee. I have a part-time admin, and I have great students that come by grants. But our mm-hmm. model is to really say every single project is going to be run by the local people of that community, and that's what we've done mm-hmm. in the last eight years. So it's, it's really something that I challenge every charity that I connect with when I public speak, when I get into a forum like this. My challenge is to really, this is about the people. Mm-hmm. This isn't about H2O for all putting a sticker somewhere, tagging myself on Facebook, which we all like right. to do. But it's really about the people and saying, you know, we care about you. We've come into your home. We've come into your lives. How can we make your life better? Excellent. So you mentioned Zambia. What other countries do you work in? So we work in, in Liberia, in Nigeria, in Ghana, in Sierra Leone on the west side of Africa. Mm -hmm. So we have projects all running there with our partners. And then we're working um, in Uganda, which is in uh, kind of eastern Africa. And we have many projects there. And then we have some this project I was talking to you in Zambia. The other work that we have going on is in Dominican Republic and Haiti. Mm -hmm. We work with some great, wonderful organizations on the ground. And then we have a project in Colombia that we are working through some schools. And then our final country that we've just started working in is Cuba, of all places. Hmm. So Cuba has been on the news in the last little while, and I was just there in March when President Obama was landing. I was literally taking off that day. Is That's a country, wonderful country, but their infrastructure is so old that their piping is so old that their water is contaminated. Okay. So we work with uh, local 
faith communities on making sure that the water that comes to the communities are purified. It's a little different. You know, some people have come to me and I, I put my engineering hat on and they'll be like, you know, why don't you just drill wells everywhere? Why don't you just create a technology that solves the world's problem of water? And the issue with water, as we know across Canada, is water is different in every country. Water is has different properties in a sense everywhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you can't solve a problem that's the same in Haiti and Dominican and well, expect that and, heat, and expect heat that and to happen. The, the heat right. in those countries and uh, organisms and, and I would think would be exactly. And some of them are you just can't drill a well in a certain country and expect to drill a well mm, in a different country. Right. So it's not all about wells. And in some countries, there's a lot of rain. So we do a lot of our projects around rain capture and storage, mm. right? So my point is that it's there's not one solve all. There's not right. one silver bullet. It's a it's something that you have to say. Well, we are going to go into this community and figure out their life and their story and who they are and invest in those people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I, um, we as a charity are really good at doing. So what are some of the things that you've seen the people dealing with with water and what impact has the organization been able to make in in lives in some of these countries? I think some of the things that we've seen is that water impacts everyone. At this moment right now, there's close to 1 billion people that don't have access to clean drinking water that's sitting on this table. There's 2 billion people on the planet that won't use a toilet today. Mm. That's So you mix those two worlds of unclean water and sanitation so I credit my mother every time I'm giving speeches sometimes she's there is my mother taught me right away that when you use the bathroom you wash your hands and there's a reason for that but imagine in a country that you aren't washing your hands after using the bathroom so some of those combinations and some of those things create sickness and the transmission of disease right so what we've been able to do and and have seen is a lot of these things sometimes come down to that simple instruction that my mother gave me to teach some of these people hygiene practices, to say, well, when you're doing this, make sure you're not doing this. When you're cooking, make sure you're doing that. The other things we've seen are the empowerment of people to take some of these tasks on their own. So some of our projects really look at, you know, we work in some medical clinics, we work in hospitals, we work in schools, we work in orphanages, and we've really seen that this becomes something that's part of their life. Mm-hmm. I woke up today, I didn't have to walk more than 10 feet from my bed mm-hmm. to turn on my tap to get very clean water. Most of the people on the planet aren't getting clean water to begin with, but they're not walking 10 feet, they're walking thousands of feet. Right. And this is the big thing that's the to issue. Get to, to be getting, to water, getting that, water. To be getting water that yeah. might make them ill. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So the big challenge when you come into this conversation about water and sanitation is cultural understanding and doing something that they've always done. If my parents told me to drink dirty water from birth and I didn't understand that it was dirty, that it was causing mm-hmm. diarrhea and, yeah. and all of these issues, I probably would be still doing it. Right. So some of the people we meet, they don't understand that the water that they're drinking is giving them the sickness or inducing the sickness. Right. So part of our work that we've seen is really how do we bridge that gap on that cultural side and making sure that they understand 
that even when we do get them clean water, that that's something that they need to do. Mm -hmm. What's been your favorite project? I had a couple people ask me this in the last couple weeks. They said, what's your favorite thing about running, doing H2O, being a part of H2O for all? And there's so many things over the last eight years that have taken me around the world. You know, I've sat down with presidents. I've sat down with world leaders. I've sat down with so many different people. I, I still come back to the favorite thing is sitting in the home of a person that's living in a difficult situation to be able to help them to in that, that immediate thing. It wasn't the glory of being in any other medium, but sitting with a woman that is sitting across from me that has eight children that all she wants to do is to see her eight children live a, a great life. As we were involved in a hospital that had no water, we partnered with Save the Mothers, a great Canadian charity, and another wonderful woman named Dr. Jean Chamberlain. She was speaking at McMaster. We connected, and in 2011, I went to see this hospital that had no water, if you can believe a hospital well, with no water. I'm glad you repeated that, because <laughs> I was going to ask you to repeat that. A hospital with no water with no is something water. that is almost impossible for us to imagine. Absolutely. And I couldn't even believe it at first. So when I went there for the very first time, I started walking around the hospital, turning on the taps, and there was no water anywhere. You had to prove it. You couldn't believe you know, it. You had to prove I, I'm it I'm not even yourself. joking. I, I, I just was like, are you sure? Are you sure? So what ended up happening is we were able to do a wonderful project there, a wonderful project. And this hospital services a community of 1.2 million people. So a hospital wow. with no water is servicing a community of 1.2 million what we found, though, and this is one of the exciting things, is we found that when we increased the water, we were able to get them some water. Mm -hmm. The sepsis rate was at about 8.9%. So that's the infection rate that when you're, you know, giving birth or, you know, mm -hmm. you're exposed, you can get infected. And babies die and women were dying. Mm -hmm. Within three months, that sepsis rate went to 2.9. This is in 2012. Wow. Three months. And in the next three months, so a total of six months, it went to zero. This is in 2012. To this day, in 2016, the sepsis rate is still at zero. And wow. to me, what that talks about is we communicated with the people. We figured out how we can do the best intervention. And that water was able to get them to the point that they didn't have water to even clean the tables. They didn't mm -hmm. even have water to clean themselves when they were doing some of these things. And I think that's a, an incredible story. The yes. last story I'll tell you that's my favorite and one of the ones I talk about is I worked in Sierra Leone, one of the poorest countries by the UN. It's rated uh, next to Afghanistan on the, on the level of a UN rating okay. of the poorest and hardest countries to work in. And I was invited into a, a, a village of polio members, people suffering and the effects of polio, a very de de debilitating and it really brings people to the point that they can't be mobile. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one of the things when I met these people, you know, I just loved them and they were so funny and lovely and wonderful, but they became outcasts of their community, literally, because they were disfigured and they people thought, you know, maybe the devil was cursing them or mm. a lot of this crazy things. Maybe they look funny. And their community was really like turned their back on them. And um, I was very saddened by that. And so we raised some money. We came to Canada, we raised some money, and we went back and we implemented a very simple project there, purified project with some tanks and some taps, and we set up a tap 
outside of their village. Mm-hmm. And before I left, the day we turned on the tap, there was tens and twenties of people lined up to come and get water. And they stayed there all night to get the water. Oh, my. And these people, and this is what the power of the story was, these are the people that had turned their back on them for years and for a generation. They were lining up to come to these polio survivors to come get this water. And over the last few years, what's happened, because they have had the water, now they're giving the water to the people that have made fun of them and ridiculed them and despised them in terms of their community. They have now built the friendship with their community and said, look at me, I'm not weird. And Look at me, I'm a human being. Look at me, I'm just like you. And then this, I, I, I... it, it just if I, if that was the only thing I ever did with H two O for all, I'd be like that. That's incredible just to see a generation of of these polio survivals be able to give back. Mm-hmm. And br- the water built what's a bridge? Yeah. To say here's the clean water we're giving you to the people that have ridiculed, made fun of us, and we're not only going to give it to you, but we want to become friends with you, right. and we want to let you know that we're not different. We're humans. So those are the two things that have really challenged me. Those are two very powerful And they really speak to me in saying, this is why I work so hard. This is why I give this, the charity work, a lot of effort. Yeah. So thank you for letting me be able to share that. But Tim, what are your biggest challenges? Biggest challenges, obviously, someone might say is money, but money will always be there and it's something that's something that's a challenge for any charity. But I think mm-hmm. the biggest challenge is letting people understand the need. So even when I was in Taste, uh, we did a fundraising event in Oakville just on the weekend. When I stood in front of everybody, there was maybe about 80 to 100 people, is it being able to tell somebody, just like when I grew up in Canada and didn't understand it, is that there is a need. There is a mm-hmm. 1 billion people, literally, and Vicky's seen it. There are 2 billion people that will not go to a bathroom, right, today. Right. So when you are able to communicate the need and to be able to communicate the story, no one would be able to say, I'm not going to give money. So I don't think it's the money issue. I think it's the understanding of the need. And I I think once people understand the need, they will give the dollars. So Education education is the answer. answer. So I think that's my biggest thing. And as a charity, I have an engineering hat. And as you were saying, I'm doing my master's in public health. Some of the things that we're, as a charity, are trying to tell more stories, trying to bring more people like Vicky to the field, mm-hmm. trying to get people more connected to what the issues are. And I think yeah. that's kind of what I'd say. That's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So I think we'll take a short break here. And when we come back, we're going to hear from Vicky about her experiences in Uganda. We're really excited to, to do that. So we'll be back shortly. Is there a contribution that you dream of making? What if you could make a far bigger impact than you ever thought possible? Charitable giving is often presented as something you do when you're extremely wealthy or planning your estate. Step Right with Lynn focuses on good money management and designing your contribution at every step around the issues important to you. Learn how clarity about what is important to you gives every aspect of life new meaning. Tune in to Step Right with Lynn regularly. So welcome back to Step Right with Lynn. 
I'm your host, Lynn Wedham. Please feel free to contact me if you have ideas for show topics or people that you think would make great guests or have a story to tell. You can reach me by email at lynn at stepright.ca. That's lynn, L-Y-N-N, at stepright, S-T-E-P-R-I-G-H-T dot C-A, or give me a call, 519-448-3477. So, Vicki, what kinds of projects did you work on in Uganda? Well, the first year, uh, 2014, I worked at the Kualo Hospital in Lugazi, which is probably halfway between Jinja and the capital, Kampala. Mm-hmm. And it was the second phase of the project. And last year, I worked at a medical outreach clinic. The charity there is called Rotom, Reach One, Touch One Ministries. And the clinic was built by the Stephen Lowe's Foundation. Beautiful little clinic dedicated to elder care, but no safe water. That's what we were doing last year. We put in a safe water system there. Awesome. Yes. So two completely different projects, but two equally gratifying experiences. Mm -hmm. What kind of work are you doing when you're there? In our first year at the Kualo Hospital, we did painting. Mm -hmm. Painting needed to be done. Uh, We painted the pediatric building. We needed to dig trenching to lay the PVC piping. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was a lot of trenching to be done. I think it was probably, I don't know, 200 meters or more of trenching. And they hadn't had rain for a while, and it was clay soil, so it was a lot of work. Oh, yeah. um, you know, we were working hard, so there was a team of us trenching, some of us were painting, um, then we would lay the PVC piping, we had to, um, you know, attach the conduit to uh, put the pump into the, the well, and there was never uh, nothing for us to do, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) So is this you working with um, people in the community, or is it just a group of volunteers doing this that you've brought from Canada, or uh, who are the people doing the work? Okay, so the first year um, that I went in 2014, there was a group of uh, I think there was 19 of us on a, on the trip that year. It was a it was a large group, so mostly it was people in the group that were doing the work. Definitely the painting. Um, we had children around us a lot of the time. Uh-huh. Some of the boys they were maybe ages 10 to 16, and and sometimes girls too. They would come and grab our pickaxes, <laughs> and we'd have to chase them and say, "Hey, we need our pickaxe." They would want to help, yeah. so they would they would jump in and help, but. Because because we didn't have a lot of equipment, I mean, we couldn't bring pickaxes and those things with us, shovels mm-hmm. and hoes. We used what they had or, or what we could afford to buy over there. So we had three pickaxes, I think, three hoes, three shovels. So we're trying to rotate that around. And then so the kids would jump in and sometimes that would be a welcome break for us. We'd mm-hmm. be, you know, take a break. Okay, they'd take a few. Oh, um, sure. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. They would work yeah. a little bit, then we would jump in and help out again too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, typically we have the same group trenching and laying piping and the same group painting for that week. So how does a community respond when when you people who are obviously different and come from a very different place, I mean you must seem a bit exotic to them? 
Absolutely. How, how do they react to you? Absolutely. Um, well, we were a bit of a novelty. Mm-hmm. You know, some of us were blonde and, and uh, white skinned. So especially the children, as soon as the bus would come in in the morning, they'd wait at the gate and they'd run after the bus until we parked and they'd surround our bus. But what I found very interesting was the people while we were working and trenching, people we didn't know, they didn't know what we were doing, who we were, mm-hmm. but they could see we were working very hard. And I was struck by the fact that people would actually come up to us and say, thank you, thank you, God bless you, thank you for helping us. Oh. They had no idea what the end result was going to be. They just saw we were there helping them. There was help. Absolutely. I think the term for a white person is Mazungu. And, and so the kids would say, Mazungu, Mazungu. They would follow us around. <laughs> and so it, it was quite comical. We had a little gaggle of children that would follow us around every <laughs> that's day. What you, that's what you call a group of children, is <laughs> exactly. a gaggle? A gaggle of children, that's right. <laughs> and it was, it was fun. But, you know, sometimes we'd be trenching away and uh, one of our team members would get out a little ball that they had brought you know a a dollar store plastic Mm -hmm. ball that you buy for 50 cents well oh my gosh you would get a group of children 20 of them playing and playing with this ball and for 50 cents the entertainment value and the Mm -hmm. laughter and the smiles that brought to their faces was overwhelming Mm -hmm. I mean here our children sit on video games and, and, and iPhones for hours and hours. They're not even outside. And, and, don't, and don't appreciate that as much as this group mm-hmm. Absolutely. is, is, uh, is Absolutely. appreciating the ball. Yeah. I guess the children as well would be a great reminder to you of what you're trying to accomplish because really that's you're trying to improve the future Absolutely. for those children. Right. Absolutely. So the, the closeness of having the children there I'm sure yeah. was a great reminder of Absolutely. Of the work that you were. For sure, because children are the future in any country, really. And can we imagine, can we imagine raising our children and not having water? Hmm. No, I, as a mother, I I, I absolutely can't. I mean, I I help a little boy over there now. His name's Pascal. Mm -hmm. And um, he was one of the little boys that would help us trench every day. Mm -hmm. And if I could tell this story quickly. Absolutely. he was crying one day. We had to stop at the hospital. It was a day when we were not working but touring around, and we had to stop at the hospital for or some reason. And Pascal was there waiting for us, and he was crying. And so he couldn't, didn't speak a lot of English. He was about 11 or 12 at the time. And so our bus driver, as our interpreter, asked him what was wrong, and he said his grandmother told him he couldn't go to school because she couldn't afford to send him to school. We, as a team of volunteers, said, that's not going to happen to this boy. We Mm -hmm. need to give him a chance at life. And so we collected money, and we collected enough to send him to school for three terms, $75 U.S. a term. It is. And $75 to to many of us is, you know, we'll go to the LCBO and buy three bottles of wine for $75, Mm -hmm. or we'll go spend $75 a month at Starbucks, Mm -hmm. right? And um, so to give a child a chance, Mm -hmm. a fighting chance in life, is really important. Mm -hmm. And um, it's pretty, again, hard for us to imagine a child um, in this part of the world crying because they couldn't go to school exactly you know we again it's something that we 
we take the water for granted, we also take our education for granted as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. For sure yeah. we do. And, and the opportunities that, that we have, uh, we certainly are, I take them for granted. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's uh, very hard to imagine. So what were the daily challenges that, that your team faced as you were trying to accomplish this work? Well, I think the biggest challenge was, like Tim said, we were at a hospital, especially the first year at the Kuala Hospital. You know, we got off the bus and we were just in disbelief, our team, that we had no water and no power. And they're delivering babies using wipes. And we're thinking, oh, "Oh, this is just incredible, right? So imagine trying to wash walls with an inch of water in um, in the pediatric unit or the maternity unit with an inch of dirty water because mm-hmm. we we had no water and so we had our the the caretaker at the hospital was helping out and so he would bring us little bits of water here and there that they had had trucked in but they had to pay for and when they truck okay. in water to that hospital it's under police guard like oh wow it is like liquid gold truly we're so used to having good hygiene to wash our hands and and use a toilet and and we couldn't flush and we you know we were trying to prepare lunch and that we mm. had no power we were fortunate we had bottled water uh, that mm-hmm. we were drinking every day but it was almost like we felt guilty we, we wanted to hide this water because yeah. we're sweating and perspiring and we can't get dehydrated so we're yeah. drinking water even though we were working to establish water for them we had no water right and so it was very very difficult to to work so we managed to wash walls but you're thinking man I'd like to get these walls cleaner or scraping screens that were thick um, half inch with dirt Mm -hmm. and there's no way to really get it really clean Mm -hmm. so we did it's not like taking your power washer like no we're gonna clean a a screen we take a power washer and it gets clean absolutely not yeah absolutely for sure and um you know even in our accommodation that we stayed in was very spotty with air conditioning at night with power it would go off (laughs) there wouldn't be air there wouldn't be fans things we just take for granted here we're hot we flip on our air conditioning uh we're thirsty we go get a bottle of water we couldn't do that there Mm -hmm. and neither could the people so it was a big eye-opener yeah before you left what were you feeling what were you anticipating in uganda did you feel safe when you were there so i think when my friend suggested that that um, I come to Africa with him and work on a project. I'm thinking, oh, Africa, that's a long ways away. I'm, uh, yes, there's political unrest in some mm-hmm. of these countries. There's malaria. But I thought, you know, take a step out of your comfort zone. When I got there and realized that we in the West worry about these things. And yes, there's potentials for these things to happen, safety issues or having malaria or contracting another disease but that can happen anywhere in the world Mm -hmm. I mean look at there's terrorism all over the world Mm -hmm. so I think if you are afraid to step outside of your comfort zone and deny yourself the opportunity to help these people and and if it's something that you're thinking of in the back of your head I, I say Step outside that comfort zone, go there and see, because these people are like you and me, and they're so grateful and wonderful. 
and I would say it was the best thing that ever happened in my life. It completely changed my life, Mm -hmm. completely changed my life. And I'm so passionate and so grateful that I had the experience. And it's so interesting because people would say to me, people there would say, thank you for what you've done for us. Or I would come back here and people would say, it's great that what you're doing. But I would tell people, no, it's not what I did for them, it's what the experience did for me. Mm. And so that's the message I like to convey. It's like, go outside your comfort zone. Don't be afraid of these things. And Mm -hmm. when I got there, I realized that, you know what, it's the West makes them seem bigger than they truly are. Well, and and I think I think we lump all of Africa together. Africa's a big place, and you Absolutely. know we hear, is, yeah. we hear that something happened in in Africa could happen in our East Coast that don't affect us on the West yeah, Coast absolutely. in Canada, well, too. And it's it's you interesting know. you should say that because the very first year I went, uh, Ebola was just starting to um, rear its ugly head. Yeah. And people would say to me, oh, what about Ebola? But Ebola was in, in Western Africa, Different near Sierra, Sierra Leone. Okay. We were like from Quebec City to Vancouver. Away. Away. Yeah. So yeah. was it a concern? Well, it was in the back of my mind, but was it going to stop me from going? Absolutely not, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Plus, we know what good hygiene is, right? right? Yeah. So a lot of these people that were contracting Ebola have no idea what what it means to have good hygiene right. or what it takes, right. washing hands, soap, yeah. that sort of I thing. Think, I think when you, when you talk about, you know, some of the awful things that happened, like even if, if, we, if we said, you know, three awful things happened in that country in a year, yeah. Well, that means there was more than 300 days, nothing bad happened. Right. Yeah. It's right. It's you know, we right. just we just have a very negative way of um, of perceiving things sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, like I say, the West, we can make things into something that's bigger than it truly is. And mm-hmm. I think you have to go with trust. And I know Tim as a leader, he's not going to take us into uh, a, a zone that's dangerous, Um so you have to go with a certain level of trust. It's is mm-hmm. you know if you awareness to, too. Abs- you know, many times we don't understand situations, and you know, fear comes from not understanding things. For sure, absolutely, well. I would agree yeah. with that. Yeah, wholeheartedly. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about the people of Uganda. Who did you meet, and how you know what were they like? And um, you've already told us. I think one favorite story is of that young man that yes. you told us about. Um, but do you have any other Little favorite Pascal, stories? Yes. <laughs> oh, I've got many actually. But I would first of all like to say that I found the people of Uganda to be very grounded and very mm-hmm. very community minded and it's quite interesting actually the two times i've come back to uganda i i've dreamt of the people i've met for 3 weeks every single night i'll i'll be dreaming of them and it was after the first trip i i kind of asked myself one morning why is it that this was so profound for me why am why is it that i keep thinking of these people and then it struck me and i thought they're it's because no one has an ego. It's not about mm. what you drive or where you live okay. or what kind of job you do. 
yes, there's wealthy people in any uh, sure. as in any big city in Kampala. There are wealthy people, but for the most part, the people that we're dealing with are all they're poverty stricken, but they're grateful for what they have, and they're it's all about family, community, and. They're very grounded and happy, and they would give you literally the shirt off their back, even mm. though they may only have one. And what I found made me so happy and, and made my heart so happy is like every time you would smile at someone, they return your smile with this great big smile. And it's just, it's heartwarming because really it's all it's all about we're the same. We are all part of the same thread of humanity. And that's what it's about. It's about helping other people. I've had people say to me, you know what, you're only helping, you know, a few people. But my thing is, if you go and impart kindness to someone, and they imp- impart kindness to somebody else, mm-hmm. and they to somebody else, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's what these projects do. As Tim said, we empower people. Look at the example of of the people with polio. That's an incredible story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's that kindness that's being returned and it gets bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. I think that anytime that, that we can, that we see people and we see the things that we have in common, whether rather than seeing the things that are different. I have always been someone who has been able to see what I have in common with someone. It is, and the, the difference is not the, uh, is not the primary focus. And I think some mm-hmm. people get yeah. very thrown off by what's different and, and don't, don't see how we're all the same. You know, we think the same about our children. We have the same emotions. You know, all the basic things, everybody grieves when they lose children. It doesn't matter where in the world you are. Your smile analogy, you give a smile and you get a bigger one back. I think if that analogy can go much farther than that, right? Right. Because you also talked earlier when you were talking about Yes, you gave, but you received so much. Absolutely, and and uh, and it made me think that you're talking about the smile that um, that's kind of symbolic of of what you're saying. There. Right. So right. Yeah, that's uh, that's very cool. Yes, I'm looking forward to going back. In I think in six weeks we're going back, and you know there's a few people that I'm looking forward to seeing, and um, my my little boy Pascal for one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping I also sponsor a senior. I came back last year, and her name's Josephine Kindy. Tell us about her. Um, she's 89 years old, and she unfortunately has no children or grandchildren herself, and she lived in extreme poverty. Her latrine was falling in, and um, actually when we first saw her come to the clinic, she actually had a big cyst on the back of her head the size of a grapefruit that had to be lanced. And so she was coming back for a follow-up a few days later, and my daughter spotted her on the road. I I was lucky enough to, to travel there last year with my daughter. And my daughter said, Mom, she looks like she's in pain. Should I go help her? And I said, absolutely. So this woman didn't speak English. So my daughter grabbed her by the arm and just sort of helped her, you know, slowly uh, down the road to the clinic. And her husband, this woman's husband was ahead of her. And that could be the culture. So when I left, when we were just leaving the Rotom uh, project, one of the admin staff came up to me and said, would you be interested in sponsoring her for $35 a month? And I thought, how can I not? Mm -hmm. This woman needs help. 
And so now what she does is she gets transferred to an outreach location every week where she gets spiritual care. She's with other seniors. She gets medical care. And she wrote me a, a nice note at Christmas time through an interpreter. And it was just wonderful. I mean, it's, it's God bless you. So, you know, she's 89 years old. And the trouble is in Africa, what happens with seniors, which is, is quite unfortunate, is if they go to hospital mm-hmm. and they're waiting for care, there sometimes can be two, 300 people waiting in outpatients to see one doctor. Wow. And if you're 89 years old... They keep mm-hmm. pushing you to the back of the line because they Literally. say you're old. You're going to yeah. die anyways. Oh, yeah. Wow. Right. <laughs> so the Rotom Clinic that we worked at last year is dedicated specifically to elder care. And Kenneth, who runs the clinic, is, is passionate about helping these elderly people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, here I am. I, I, I've got this little boy who has his life ahead of him, who is HIV positive, however. Mm-hmm. And I've got Josephine at the other end of her life. But if I can help to make their life just a little bit better... You know, I feel like I'm making headway. And certainly a big impact when you talk that she had this thing that needed to be lanced. I'm thinking about that one procedure in those conditions. Yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly. So yeah. now she was in the Rotom Clinic, which was um, is a, is by, by the hospital standards is much nicer. I mean, it mm-hmm. was built in 2009, I think, Tim, was it? Yeah. Something like that. So it's new and and, and clean looking. So it wasn't at all like the hospital that we were at. Because when we picture hospital, I mean, Tim and I are from Oakville. And Oakville has now the largest hospital in Ontario. Okay. So when when we say hospital, people think of hospital. But when we were talking (laughs) about Koala Hospital, it was these little small buildings. One for men, one for women, one for pediatrics, one for maternity, one for the OR. So what's your next trip? Well, the next trip in six weeks is to go back again, once again, to work with Rotom. But this time we are working at, it's a health clinic off-site, about, what is it, 50 kilometers from the clinic? Yeah, about 50 kilometers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's a medical outreach clinic. Mm-hmm. So it's where seniors in the area would go to gather and the clinician and the nurses would travel there to give them medical care. Okay. And also they would receive spiritual, they receive spiritual counseling um, yeah. and the seniors. It's like a gathering point mm-hmm. because yeah. mm-hmm. a lot of these uh, grandparents are raising children on their own. There's a whole generation that was lost to AIDS in mm-hmm. Uganda, okay. as in many African countries. So a lot of times these seniors are, they feel like they're out there by themselves. They live in extreme poverty. They're trying to bring up children on their own mm-hmm. that are their grandchildren. Right. And now many of these grandchildren are older. They're coming into puberty and adolescence and we all if you've been a parent we all know that's not an easy time so this this air this medical outreach location will offer support to these seniors okay is there a relationship to water in this situation yes we're putting a a water spigot in yeah we're digging a borehole deep borehole and then we're also, uh, the water from the borehole is going to supply to the four latrines, four bathrooms. Okay. And then it'll give drinking water for drinking, water for cooking, 
water for the bathrooms, water for washing. Mm-hmm. So it's a beautiful um, community, and it's in the middle of nowhere. It's no electricity. We're going to be using solar panels. It's literally in the middle of nowhere. Cool. Um, yeah. It's very, very excited about that. Yeah. So, uh, Tim, how can people find out more and, and uh, how can they get involved? Yeah. So we, we would love for anyone to come on our website. It's uh, h2o4all.org. So that's h2o4all.org. If someone would like to email us, we're at info, I-N-F-O, at h2o4all.org. That's our, you can find that on the website. Mm-hmm. And then if you want any information up from our office, our office phone number is 905-330-6644. 905-330-6644, and that's our office in Oakville. Um, so Excellent. any of those social media or website means you can find out about our projects find out how to volunteer also find out kind of how vicky got involved we have multiple trips throughout the year Mm -hmm. to different countries that we go and people just like uh, vicky can come on uh, on board on one of our trips Mm -hmm. as well which is a great education about what's uh, going on in the world yeah pretty incredible well that's wonderful we wish you the best of of success in every project that you're undertaking and thank you for helping all the people out there thank Thank you you. thank you very much for having us yeah excellent so I invite our listeners to come back next week when my guest will be Jim Estill. Uh, Jim's known most recently for his work in bringing Syrian refugee families to Guelph, Ontario. He's a fascinating guy, and we look forward to speaking with him next week. So we'll speak with all of you again next time. Uh, this is Lynn Wedham. The show is Step Right with Lynn, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for choosing to listen to Step Right with Lynn. We hope you'll join us next time. Remember to celebrate your wealth by doing something for yourself, your family, and your community. Until next time.